0: you brought your Bibles, Matthew chapter 2. I'll tell you what, this is a great time of the year. Don't you just love it? I mean, it is awesome. If you just saw some of the faces of all those kids that were passing by you, you can just see the excitement in their faces. It's, this is just really, as we approach the heart of this holiday, it's truly just kind of one of those just memorable times of the year. And I hope that you're letting it just sink in and you're truly making the most and enjoying this time where we celebrate Christmas. But I have a question for you. And it's a question that really every person needs to answer in their life. And that is, who are you calling king? Who really is the, the king, the authority, the ruler, the, the owner of your life? And in order to really answer that question, we actually have to go back and back in time we have to meet an individual who called himself the king of the Jews. This particular individual was the most feared man in all of Palestine, kind of that area of Israel that we know of today. This man who called himself the king of the Jews was, was a man who was greatly feared. And as we take a little bit of time to talk about him this morning, you're going to find out for some very obvious reasons. This man has gone down and is entitled in history, is called Herod the Great. He was called Herod the Great because he was a great builder. But you need to know something about this man, Herod, if you're going to truly be able to understand and answer the question, who really is the king of your life? Herod the Great was born on 73 B.C. At the ripe old age of 25, his father actually appointed him the position of the governor of Galilee. And so as a very young man, he all of a sudden tasted a lot of power. He actually proved himself to be rather successful in driving out Jewish rebels. And so he kind of made a name for himself as being a ruler who, need, who actually was, had the ability to be a great warrior, a great fighter. And now, um, this, this Herod, uh, some, some events took place in his life. For instance, his father was poisoned and actually died. And shortly after this event, from the east, the Parthians invaded Palestine. Now, the Romans never had actually successfully uh, been able to quell uh, this whole area of Parthia And so they came in, in force, and they were able to drive out the Romans, including Herod. Herod escapes with his life. He flees. He goes all the way down to Egypt. He kind of gathers himself together. And while while he's in Egypt, he makes the decision, I'm going to go to Rome because I want my kingdom and my country back. And so he goes to Rome, and there the Senate, the Roman Senate, and the Emperor give him this title, the King of the Jews. So with that, he was able to gather a large Roman army. The next year, he makes his way back to Palestine. And after several years of fighting, so he gets the title in 40 B.C., by 37 B.C., he now has been successful in kicking out the Parthians who had kind of joined up with the Jews. And he was able to quell the, the Jewish rebels that were causing all these problems that linked up with the Parthians and drive the Parthians out. And he establishes himself. As the king of the Jews. Now, he is obviously in a place ruling people that hate him with a passion. And for really good reason. So as soon as he takes takes over as king, you know what he does to kind of endear himself to the people? He starts killing off the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And one by one, he has these people executed. You imagine that probably goes over real well. He sees that things aren't going too smoothly. And the people that he's ruling hate him. So he, as a smart, intelligent man, decides that, I know how to get to the heart of these people, I'll marry one of their favorites. And so he does. He marries a woman by the name of Mariami. She is from the Hasmonean house. She is the granddaughter of one of the high priests. And so he believes that he will endear himself to the people by marrying this woman, Mariami. And so he does. Now, now, you need to know something about the king of the Jews, Herod. Herod actually isn't Jewish. He's an Edomite. Uh, he's from the area of Edom, which is kind of south of the Dead Sea. These have historically been severe enemies for the Jews. They wouldn't let him pass through when they were making their exodus. They, wouldn't allow, they were, wouldn't allow any sort of friendship. They were always trying to block trade, and they would make raids in there. They were anti- continually a persistent threat. To the Jewish people. This King Herod, he's an Edomite. He marries this Jewish gal. Now, you need to know that uh, he wasn't thinking like, I just need to marry one gal. Actually, Maryamme was not even his first wife. We know from records that Herod actually had married at least ten times. He did so for two reasons. One, just to simply try to satisfy the desires of his flesh. But two, to create political alliances and so we have this King Herod. Now, King Herod was a complex individual. He was, a, like we talked about, a very capable warrior. He was an orator, and he was a diplomat. He knew how to make good moves when the time called. For instance, one time, uh, he, he actually uh, he gave back some of the taxes he had collected to the people because they were impoverished, and they were going through a seriously difficult time, so he gave back money to them. Another time, in the Great Famine of 25 B.C., Herod actually has gold utensils and items in his palace melted down so that he can actually buy food for the people that are starving in his kingdom. Pretty good move. But he was also, not only at times could he have this, like, all of a sudden he does this radically nice thing, Herod the Great was known to be great because of his massive building programs. And he built everywhere. In fact, you can still go to Israel today and see all these different places that he built. He built theaters and amphitheaters. He had monuments. He made pagan altars. And not only just in Israel, he sponsored works throughout the Roman Empire. This man loved to build. His most famous project was the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. He started it in 19 B.C. It didn't actually complete get finished until 68 years after his death, it was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was absolutely beautiful, and it was all part of the master design of this Herod, Herod the Great. You've probably heard of Caesarea, that wonderful port city right there in Israel. Guess who came up with that and made that? Herod, our man. He also, he was obviously very afraid of the Parthians making an invasion and kicking him out like they did when he was a young guy. And so he established a bunch of fortress palaces along the east side of his kingdom. You're probably familiar with some of them. You can actually visit the ruins of them, but you've got Herodium. You've got this beautiful palace in Jericho. You have Machaerus. You have Sebaste. And then the one that you're probably most familiar with, the one that gets the most tourist attention, is Masada. These were palace fortresses that were set up by Herod for the event that if there was ever an invasion by the Parthians from the east, that he would be ready to go to war and he'd be able to keep him out of his kingdom. But there's one other major detail about Herod's life, Herod, the king of the Jews, that you need to know. He was a man who was absolutely cruel and merciless. He had an incredible jealous streak about him. He was always suspicious. He was always thinking that someone was going to try to take his position. And he always took matters into his own hand. For instance... His, his wife's brother, okay, Mariame's brother, Aristobulus, he was the high priest. He feared that this guy would somehow create a revolt. So you know what he did? He had him drowned. He became really suspicious of his wife, Mariame. He apparently loved her, but he became suspicious that she would create some sort of opposition. And so there was this significant event that takes place in the life of Herod that actually, that historians mark, that, that seemed to mark him as a different man. He actually had her executed. Shortly after the execution of his wife, he himself becomes extremely sick and almost dies. And historians note that at this event in his life, it instilled this deep sense of paranoia that haunted him the rest of his life. After he put his wife to death, he put his wife, Mariamne's mother, to death. In fact, Herod, with his ten wives as the, one, the ones that were remaining, as they actually kept alive, they actually have these different children. These children, as they grew up, they started vying for his position of being the king of the Jews. And so, history records that Herod himself would actually imprison some of his relatives. You just looked at him crossways, and that's it. You're in prison. And he took, I mean, this paranoia. Have you ever met someone that's just paranoid, man? They just like anybody's out to get him. And so, his favorite two sons... He had them executed because he thought they were a threat to his throne. This is how he lived. In fact, Emperor Augustus is reported to have said this, It is better to be Herod's sow than his son, for his sow has a greater chance of surviving. That's how wicked this man is. In fact, Josephus, the historian who is very solicitous to the Romans, he wrote this quote-unquote about Herod. He was a man who was cruel cruel, To all alike and one who easily gave way to anger and was contemptuous of justice. So let me ask you, how do you think Herod does when Jesus is born? Well you don't have to sit there like, Whoa, I wonder how that went over. God has it recorded for reasons for us. You don't have to guess, you can see it. Matthew chapter two, verse one. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Christmas. Most of the world could tell you it's it's the birth of Jesus, the birth of Christ. But please do not get into the habit of letting those words just so quickly slip from your tongue and never touch your heart or your mind. I mean, last week, we were just overwhelmed by the fact that that Jesus was born of a virgin, and we kind of traced that out and looked at that. But you know something even far more miraculous than Jesus being born of a virgin? is that the Son of God, who has existed from all eternity, actually enters into humanity, a helpless baby. I mean, we can't reconcile that. We don't have a category. Let me try this. Um, Imagine if you were born as a worm. Well, that even doesn't hit the parallels of the eternal Son of God coming and coming as a helpless babe, being held in the hands of a frightened teenage girl, having no control of his muscles, bodily functions, crying, the Father seeing him, And seeing him willingly come and take his place into humanity so that he might be able to be as a high priest to identify with us, to know us, and to actually be a savior for us. In fact, you remember, that is why he came. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Remember, the angel told Joseph, Mary's going to bear a son, and you, you, Joseph, will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Joseph, and Mary make their trek down to Bethlehem because there's a census. Luke 2 records all the details. You have to go back to your hometown. Joseph is from where? He's from the family of David. Bethlehem is known throughout Israel as the, as the city of David. And so that's why they're there, to be counted in the census, is while they're being counted in the census that Mary actually gives birth to Jesus. And we find that when this event takes place, some days later, these magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, who are these magi? Well, most scholars believe that these are Parthians. They are, they are wise men. That's how we traditionally would call them. But they were, they were more than just wise guys that perhaps rode camels. They were actually part of a priestly political caste. They were astronomers they delved into science. They were highly educated. They read religious writings. They were served as advisors to kings. And these magi show up. Now, you've heard of like a magician or magic, okay? These, even though they come from the same derivatives, the magi were completely in another, another class, okay? You weren't a common day like magician, do little tricks, pull a little bunny out of your hat or something like that. These magi were highly esteemed, very well-educated, Extremely intelligent. And they show up in Jerusalem. Now, imagine what this must have looked like. It was very unlikely that three, three of these magi would just show up on their own. They, just like, they most likely came with a large contingent of cavalry, and they came with servants. Okay? They would be the men who would need to be protected. And so when they pull into Jerusalem, notice what the text says. They arrive from the east. They likely come from, the, from Parthia. If they came from Babylon, which is about 800 miles to the east, it took them about 40 days to make this trek. They arrive in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is what? It is the king's city. It's the capital city of the kingdom. That's where you'd expect that this child would be born. And they are saying, and that actually is interesting. The Greek, they say this over and over. They keep asking this one question. Verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They just probably start off with the first person they run into. Hey, where is the king of the Jews? I'm like, you looking for Herod? What? what? No, the one who's been born. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Why don't you boys just keep on going here? And so they did, and they just, they'd make their way into town. And you could imagine that Jerusalem would just, like, whoa, what is going on? The census has just been completed, and now you've got all these Parthians, got all these cavalry coming in. And you've got these magi that are going to look like royalty moving in. They're asking, where's the king of the Jews? Well, Lord would quickly get back to Herod. How do you think this sat with Herod about some king, born king of the Jews, when he's like, whoa, if I'm reading my name tag right, it says I'm the king of the Jews. What do you mean you're asking for some king of the Jews? Well, they're running around and they're asking this question. And not only this, but they say, where's the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We not only are looking for this king, we saw his star. Now, how in the world would these these guys relate a star with the coming of an eternal king? Especially if they're Parthians. Let me give you two, I think, primary reasons why they're here. One, we have to go back to the time of Daniel. So let's go back 6th century B.C., You've got Daniel, who is made the chief prefect. Okay, Remember, Daniel is a Jewish young man. He has such wisdom that God has given him that actually Nebuchadnezzar makes him the chief prefect over all the wise men of all of his advisors. And Daniel himself, you can read in his writings, which was would have for certain have been kept, speaks of this coming Messiah. In fact, God actually gives him information to actually date the preciseness of when this Messiah is coming. They certainly have this information. They would be tracking history because he actually spells it out in Daniel chapter 9. They would be knowing that it's right around this time period that Daniel said there is going to be this coming Messiah. But furthermore, they would also probably be very familiar with Daniel's writings. You'll remember in 586 B.C., Babylon came in and they just took over hordes of the Jewish people, and they hauled them to Babylon. When, when they were actually allowed to go back, most of the Jews actually stayed in the Babylonian Empire. And so there were many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Jews living in the East who have the Hebrew Scriptures, and they are aware of these prophecies of a coming one. In fact, there was a strong messianic expectation. And one of the prophecies for certain... That they would have been holding on to. It's found in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, which says this It is Balaam's prophecy, and it says this A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, all of a sudden, this star appears. This is really interesting about a star because you know how the Bible ends? The Bible ends with Jesus making this statement, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things to the church for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So, what kind of star is this? Now, there's a lot of speculation on that. There's some folks that think like, well, it was a supernova that occurred. You can look at some astrological records, and, and lo and behold, there are some really unique features that take place in the sky kind of around the time of the birth of Jesus. Some suppose it was a comet that sort of appears. And this is what this kind of gives them, like, whoa, we need to go after that. Uh, There's others, and this is pretty intriguing. There's kind of the alignment of a couple planets, and, like, that would create this real brightness there. And so there's some speculation that, whoa, well, maybe it's these two planets that are coming together. However, if you, and as we see this as we go through the text here, this star moves unlike any other. And it has some pretty unique features. In fact, it doesn't function like a natural phenomenon, like a, any sort of star that we know or a comet or a supernova or even the alignment or conjunction of planets. It seems to have a supernatural nature that God has given it, that God is the one who has placed the star. Perhaps it would be most like the Shekinah glory that led the people of Israel. We don't know for certain what it is, but we do know that it's a supernatural, astral phenomena that these magi observed, And it triggered in their mind, likely in response to these scriptures, that they'd be familiar with, to say, that king has showed up. It matches Daniel's timetable And we're going to go check this out. In fact, they're not just checking it out. What did they come to do? What did the text say? We've come to worship him. Worship isn't like sing some songs with no heart. I worship. No, worship means actually to to bow down in total reverence, to kiss the hem of a garment. That's what these wise men intend to do. We've come to worship him. What do you think Herod's thinking about all this? Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is just like, whoa. The word this word trouble has the idea of just absolutely being frightened, filled with fear. No way. He knows that he's kind of functioning like a king serving Rome. Well now, here are these Parthians. They've sent somebody, they're gonna go and crown some king. They're gonna have their own little king ruling over here, they're gonna call him the king of the Jews. He knows he's on the edge of the empire. And if these Parthians come in and they crown some sort of king, this could turn the entire tide of power into the Parthian side, and he is probably the one that's going to be sacrificed. He is troubled, and he is worried. He knows he's no legitimate king of the Jews. He knows he's hated by the Jewish people. The last thing he wants... Are the Jewish people to rally around some sort of king that matches the prophecies of the book they hold so dear and they're willing to die for? They don't want this at all. And Herod's just like, whoa, I am in huge trouble. He is fearful. And notice the text says, and all Jerusalem with him. Why do you think Jerusalem's fearful? Because they're pretty familiar with Herod and his ways. And when Herod's unhappy, there is no one happy. And when Herod's upset, he kills people, and he's not too careful about who he's after. So he hears this. He's disturbed. He's probably thinking about the palaces and these fortresses that he's put up toward the east, but he is scared and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, he is going to, he's going to try to figure out what in the world is going on. So look at verse 4. He's gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. This is really interesting. You know, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that a chief priest, the the high priest, he actually functioned in that role until he died. Okay, And then when he died, they'd get a new one. When the Romans took over, they said, all right, Jewish people, we're going to let you have some of your aspects of your religion, but uh, we won't let you have that high priest that you like so much. However, we're going to change him out, and we're going to pick him, and we'll do it at our own discretion, and you will live with it, because it is a reminder we're in control, and you're not. And so there were multiple chief priests that functioned at this time. The Romans had point one, but they still had others that were alive. So they they were actually highly esteemed among the Jewish people. They were the chief priests, and they also had the scribes. These were primarily Pharisees. These were the ones that truly knew the laws and the traditions of the Jewish people. They were scholars in their own right, and they knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, and furthermore, they knew all the traditions of the Jews. They were the true scholars. And so Herod goes right to the people that can answer his question, And notice what his question is. I don't want you to miss this. He gathers them together, the chief priests, the scribes, the people, and he inquired of them where the, what? The Messiah, the Christ, was to be born. Who are the Magi looking for? The king of the Jews. But see, Herod, as well as everyone in the kingdom, knew that this Messiah is a king And this one who is a king from the family of David, this promised one, he is truly the Christos, the anointed one, God's anointed one who will truly redeem his people. Now, Herod is trying to get this information. Now, even among the the Romans, there was uh, the thought that there was going to come a ruler from the east that would one day rule the world. And so you've got that among the Romans. The Jewish people go, hey, that works really well with us. Because we got a lot of promises of a king from the line of David who will rule the world. And now Herod's going, all right. He goes to the source, tell me, he's inquiring where the Messiah was to be born. we got these guys showing up looking for the king of the Jews. Where is he to be born? <laughs> well, they're like, whoa, Herod. Man, finally, I'm glad we're able to kind of talk and have a decent conversation. You're asking a really good question. And you've asked us a question like, it's like a softball. This is so easy. Everybody knows, except you, obviously, but let us help you out. Verse 5, they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, like six miles south of here, just right down the road in Bethlehem of Judea, that's where he's to be born, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And then they give him, they quote him, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, a prophecy that was made about 700 years prior to this event. Hey, this is really easy. Not only can we tell you where, let me just will give you the prophecy. And you, Bethlehem, verse 6, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. In Bethlehem, you know that village down there? About, they're estimated about a thousand people lived there at the time. That city of David. There is to be born a ruler, and he is to shepherd my people. Rule speaks of the fact that he has got power. He is the king. Shepherd speaks of the tenderness of his care. But also, shepherd was also a term used for a king who had a good heart or gave great oversight. He said, that's where he's to be born. He's to be born in Bethlehem. Now, look at Herod. You can just see him working. You can just see adrenaline and fear flowing through his body. Verse 7 then Herod secretly called the Magi. He doesn't make a public deal of this. He's going to, hey, I want to invite you over for dinner, guys. And don't tell anybody. Secretly, he invites them over. And he determines from them the exact time the star appeared. Tell me about this star that brought you here. What is it? How, how, what did, you see it? When did, when did it appear? Where was it specifically? What did it look like? So he wants to know all the details. And here's something that, that is just, I find extremely interesting. Who do you think sends the Magi to Bethlehem. It's Herod. Look at verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem. You would think, the scribes, the chief priests, I mean, everybody in Jerusalem knows these guys are in town. They say, hey, you're looking for the king of Jews? We've got this prophecy. Let me help you add, put the puzzle together. He's supposed to be about six miles south of here. No. Herod. Herod, the king. He's the one who sends them to Bethlehem and he says, listen to this. Men, Go and search carefully for the child. Don't make any mistake. You figure it out. You're smart, right? You're the wise man. Figure it out. Know exactly who this baby is. Carefully search out this child. And when you have found him, uh, just so you remember that I'm the king of the Jews, I want you to report to me. And you know what I'm going to do? So that I too may come and worship him. I want you to know that I'm I'm in this just like you are, and I want you to go. I'm a little busy here with all the little kingdom work here. You know, you just finished up a census. I want you to go and uh, you go find find this little baby, you know, that this, this King of the Jews, this Christ, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna come down and I'm gonna put it in my schedule. It'll be on my BlackBerry, and I'm gonna come down and I'm gonna worship him just like you guys traveled 800 miles to do. You think these wise men probably saw right through that? Like, yeah we've been in town long enough to hear all about you and your gentle ways, your family, and anybody that looks crossways about you, you just kind of throw them in prison or just kill them, drown them, whatever it is. Of course, they probably saw right through that. But Herod directs them to Bethlehem. He tells them about the prophecy. He tells them exactly what the chief priests and the scribes came told them. And so, verse 9, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, verse 9, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. This star, uh, even though the song says it kind of led them, it doesn't seem to be that was the case. The star makes an appearance. It so catches the attention of these men who observe the cars the stars on a, on a nightly basis, make their way, they make the 800-mile trek, but that star doesn't lead them. They saw it, apparently it disappears. Otherwise, they'd be able to point it out, and, and everyone had been focused on it. Appear- apparently, it makes an appearance. But then, when they got the information, we've got to go to Bethlehem. That's where this king is to be born. Notice what happens. The star appears, and it actually leads them. Now it's leading them. It went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. This obviously, it wasn't a comet that's like, now we're going to stay right." No, no, it's not a supernova. Somehow, this car star actually takes them right to the place where the child is born. And Matthew wants to know that there is such great joy. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like he doesn't have words enough to capture how thrilled these magi are that once again the star appears. Because you know what the star does? It tells them that most certainly God is with us. He's leading us. He cares for us. And this is unlike anything that has ever happened before. And I want you to note something. Who are the first people that are coming to worship this newborn babe? Jewish people? Gentiles. Non-Jewish people. Well, these magi, these political priests, they are overwhelmed. They are overjoyed. They see the star. They have this great joy. Verse 11, after coming into the house, the star leads them to the direct house. Now, just by the way, uh, they were born, uh, Jesus was born where? He was born in a stable. Remember, there was no room for them in the inn. There's this census. They arrive a little bit late. Even though they're all family, an extended family, like, ah, yeah, I know your wife's real pregnant and all, but we're full here. I'm sorry, there's no room for you in this inn. They have to go out in some cave or some stable, and that's where Jesus is born. Now, after the census is over, there's a crowd, crowd dispersion. Remind, let me remind you, this is all extended family. Now, I don't want you to think about your extended family, but, you know, if someone had a newborn baby, wouldn't you like, yeah, we're a little tight in here, but... Come on in. Yeah, we'll make it work. Wouldn't you think that? Well, I would imagine they see this little baby and somebody, some distant relative, says, well, we'll squeeze in and we'll make it work and you can come in. They're in a house now. This star settles over this house so that these wise men, these magi, absolutely cannot miss it. Can you see this scene? They come into the house, verse 11, and they see the child. The child. Can you the star over this house with this child with the prophecies, and with his Mary with Mary his mother, and they fall to the ground, and they worship him. can you, not, can you see the scene? I mean, if anybody had was had a, a reason to think pretty highly of themselves, it'd be this magi. Uh-uh. they recognize God indeed is with us, and that child is the Son of God. And they bow down and they worship Him. And notice how they worship. They open up their treasures. You know, when you realize who Jesus really is, you're willing to open up everything of your life. Your sin, your wealth, your time, your gifts, because He's worthy of it all. And so they open up their treasures and they presented to Him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They present to him gifts of royalty. Now, gold, that was the, gold is the gift of kings. It was not only used as a medium, like, like a currency, but they also used it to make jewelry, uh, different cups, different uh, utensils that they had. Gold, was, gold spoke of royalty. And frankincense was a much-valued spice and perfume, and they also presented to him myrrh. Myrrh was uh, an anesthetic, but was also used in incense, but it was specifically used, it was mixed with spices, with the burial of a body, to kind of overcome an odor of a decaying body. And these wise men, that's why the three gifts, that's why it's typically associated with three wise men. We don't know for certain if it's three. They worship him and they open these gifts up and they present to him. And they're bowing down, literally kissing the floor before him. They present these gifts. Some believe that these gifts spoke of Jesus and his ministry. The gold speaks of his deity and his royalty. The frankincense speaks of the fragrance of this life, the life of God. And the myrrh for his sacrifice and his upcoming death. And by the way, this baby that we celebrate at Christmas, he came to die. He came, as the angel said, verse 21, chapter 1. He is the one who is to save his people from their sins. And the only way he can do that is if he lives a perfect life He is God himself, and he takes God's just wrath for sin and pays for it. The wages of sin is death, and they worship him. Now, how did Herod personally respond to the coming of Christ? Let me just review a couple ways he's responded. He's responding with defiance. No way. I'm the king of the Jews. There will be no other. I mean, think of it. He could have easily made the road trip down there, right? He could have had someone pull him. He could ride a chariot. He could have had someone carry him, but no, no. Defiance. Let me give you another way he responds. He responds with deception. He's going to go and send the wise men. You go find out. You go find out specifically, and then you report back to me. I'll take care of it from there. He says, I'm going to go worship. You really think he is? Well, you know what? You don't have to guess on that one either. We're going to find out, how does Herod truly respond to the birth of Christ? You know, once again, you're going to see the sovereign power of God guarding and guiding his son. Verse 13. Now, when they had gone, these Magi, uh, one other thing that I need to point out to you in verse 12. They were warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod. And so the Magi left for their own country by another way. And now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This has happened before. And now this angel says, get up immediately. Take the child and his father and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. You know, uh, Joseph is pointed out as a righteous man. He's righteous because not only does he believe and trust in God, but he responds to God. You know, if you're a righteous person, not only do you believe in him, but you respond to what he says. And that's one of the things that Matthew points out about Joseph. When God speaks through an angel, he acts. Joseph doesn't like, oh, oh, Herod's going to come. Well, give me a few days to get my act together and kind of gather things. We just had the new baby and all. And I'm not sure if Mary's ready for a little road trip to Egypt that's about 90 miles south. No. He immediately responds. He's highlighted as a man who immediately responds. And so look at him in verse 14. He hears the news that Herod is coming to destroy this child. I want you to move. God supernaturally breaks in, gives this message through the angel. So, verse 14. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He got up immediately. It may have not made sense. You're like, well, I'm really tired. This has been an exhausting trip down here. No, he responds immediately to God's word. And he remained there until the death of Herod. And you see that in verse 15? This was to fulfill what has been spoken by, of, by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Once again, you've got another prophecy. There's about 330 prophecies given about, the, about Christ and his coming. In Matthew chapter 2, you have four of them. The probability of four prophecies just randomly somehow being fulfilled in one individual is almost a mathematical impossibility. This is just absolutely amazing. And what Matthew is trying to show you is that everything God has said in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is coming into fulfillment as he's focusing on Messiah and Jesus is knocking him off, his birth. Even this trip to Egypt, you see, Jesus, is to, this son of God, is to go down to Egypt because he's going to identify with his people, the nation of Israel. And just like the, the Israelites, even Abraham starts making, he flees down to Egypt to find protection. But even, uh, remember, you have uh, Jacob and all the gang, they move down there, they go down to Egypt and they come out. What Jesus is to do, because he is the son of God, he identifies with his people. And he's quoting from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And normally we wouldn't think of that as a prophecy, but what, what Matthew is drawing our attention to is that Jesus, this Son of God, this King, is identifying with his people, and he's fulfilling this prophecy out of Egypt I called my Son. So, how does Herod respond to all this? He responds not only with defiance and deception, he responds with destruction. If you're able to bear it, try reading with me in verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, they didn't come back. I told them to come back and report to me, and they did not do it. How do you think he's going to handle this? He became very enraged. You might translate this. He went ballistic. And he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity From two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. He's like, that's it. They tricked me. They didn't follow what I said. I'll take care of this. So he sends his soldiers down, and they kill every two-year-old and younger male. He doesn't care. I want them all wiped out. Kill them all. And so he does. He is a bloodthirsty man. He is going to have no rival. You want to know Herod's heart? You know what the king of the Jews' heart was? I'll kill anyone who tries to rival me. Verse 17 says, And then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Another prophecy. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Rachel is actually pictured as kind of like the mother of Israel. And this event, this prophecy, was actually speaking of the Babylonian captivity. When, when Babylon came in, they actually just killed all these people, including the children. And some they hauled off. And so Rachel, her, her grave is actually, you can still visit it in Bethlehem. It's just right on the outskirts of Bethlehem. You can still visit it today. She is pictured not only weeping for these children that were killed back then, she is pictured of weeping for these children that are killed at the coming of Christ. Now, how many would this be? They estimate the village was had about 1,000 people. So there would be about 10 to 30 boys. But imagine your two-year-old or your one-year-old boy or your grandchild killed. There would be screaming and mourning. Families would literally see soldiers breaking into their house, grabbing a young kid, determining it's a male, killing it, dropping it, moving on. Why? Because Herod's a man who's opposed to the king. Well, Herod dies. This act is called the, the massacre of the innocents. And he dies and he dies with no hope. Let me just tell you a little bit about Herod's death. Shortly before he dies, I mean, the man is actually very sick. He actually rounds up all the leading citizens of Jerusalem. And he has them imprisoned, and he has them imprisoned with this order. When I die, you kill all of them. Because I know that no one will mourn my death, and I want there to be weeping in Jerusalem when I die. So kill them. And furthermore, five days before he dies, to show you the depth of this man's paranoia, he has a third son killed because he sensed that he might try to take over the throne. And so he has him put to death. Josephus uh, yeah, writes in Antiquities, this is how he died. He died of this, ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath that neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery. And he dies and he dies with no hope. But I want you to see this. He is unsuccessful in killing the true king. You know what Christmas is? Christmas, yes, it's a celebration of Christ. It's a celebration of His coming. But Christmas is really God's call to the world. How will you respond to the Christ? Who is really going to be the the king of your life? Who will it be? You know, it's really interesting that no sooner is Jesus born and people start breaking into three different groups. You actually find them in the passage that we just looked at. How are you personally going to respond to the coming of Jesus? Because you have to answer that question. Will you, uh, will you be like Herod? Will you be caustic? Will you just respond with absolute defiance? If you ever want to see what self-centeredness looks on, looks like on steroids, all you have to do is look at Herod and look at his life. He is a man who is completely self-absorbed. You know, there's a lot of people like this today. They are caustic. They do not want a king. You see it in governments, like in North Korea, that are absolutely hostile to anyone who might even want to even say the word Jesus or a Christian. You say that word, you get caught with the Bible, not only are you in a prison camp for the rest of your life, your extended family is. It doesn't matter. They hate Christ over there, at least in the government. But you find people all around the world with the same hostility to Jesus. You want even some modern day examples, just some things that have recently been on the news? Look at some of these in-your-face atheist groups that have taken the uh, opportunity this Christmas to kind of express their thoughts on the whole seasonal matter. For instance, up in Fort Worth, go drive up there, you can encounter these buses. And on these buses, they have this sign, millions of Americans are good without God. How about that? Merry Christmas. Ha ha ha, right? Or if you're leaving New York and you go through the Lincoln Tunnel and you make your way up onto the New Jersey side, you were greeted with this billboard. It's sponsored by the American Atheists. You know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. Got your nativity scene? Got the three wise men? Got that star? That's just a myth for kids, and it ain't true. So they think, and so they say. You know, we're not typically threatened by a little baby, are we? But neither... Do we like to bow down before a king? And I want you to think real clearly about this. Because in America, we like to have Jesus when it's convenient. We'll have Christianity so long as it fits into our mold and what we want and when we want it. You know, do you really want a king? Do you? Uh, let's think about this. Most people rather want like a, a mascot or a warm blanket, maybe even a savior to oh, God, help me. I'm in a big mess or I need help here. But do you want a king calling the shots in your life? Really? Do you want a king to tell you what is right and what is wrong? Do you want a king that will tell you, hey, date these kind of people and do not be unequally yoked? Do you want a king telling you who to marry or not to marry? Do you want a king establishing your morality? Do you want a king saying this sort of behavior or this sort of entertainment will lead you down the wrong road? Whether you're romance novels or the wrong kind of movies, seriously, you want a king calling those kind of dictates in your life? Do you want a king that calls you to yield everything to him, including your your finances? Really, you want a king? You know, a lot of folks are pretty caustic when it comes to the whole idea of having a king. They respond with defiance when it says you've got a king that's going to establish your morality, tell you what is right and what is wrong. Frankly, many Americans are interested in the self-made man. They want to be masters of their own destiny. This Christmas, who are you calling king? Let me ask you, are you going to respond to Christ's coming and to Christ himself? Like the, the, the priests and the scribes who were actually complacent. They responded with total disregard. You know what? They're like, I don't know. This has no bearing on my life whatsoever. Little baby, king of the Jews, you're looking for this guy? Well, we know he's, we're, we're religious. We know this book inside and out. We'll give you the prophecy. We'll tell you exactly where he's to be born. He's like six miles from here. But do you think they went down there? Not a one. They didn't take a personal day. They don't like, whoa, this is a big deal. Here's all the Calvary, all these magi, the whole city's in a huge uproar. Could care less. They were so busy, busy with their own little religious life. They had everything kind of go their own way. They they really didn't care. Let me let me tell you this. It is possible to know the Bible and ignore the king. This Christmas. It's possible to know the Christmas story and truly ignore the Christ of Christmas and rather get caught up in trees and cookies and what kind of gifts you might want and get. You know, these scribes, the Pharisees, they responded with complete indifference. It didn't make any matter whatsoever to them. You would think that the amazing race would have been on to Bethlehem, to a barnyard delivery room. Not at all. Or this Christmas, will you respond like the wise men? And will you be compelled to worship Him? Will you respond with complete devotion? Do you know there's millions of people around this world who respond to Christ with worship and adoration? They'll open their treasures, their heart, whatever, because Christ is everything to them. They've been convicted of their sin. They actually recognize they've offended God and gone against His glory. They are convinced of His work that He truly paid for their sins, He lived a righteous life, and they are compelled to worship Him. And they sing Christmas songs with joy and with heart because Christ is everything to them. And so really Christmas is a call to respond to the coming of Christ. And will you worship Him with your heart, with your mind, with your words, with your songs, with your gifts, your resources, with your time, with your life? Who are you calling king. You know, this Christmas, I've been trying to do this. To just consciously, regularly, tell Jesus, you're my king. And to thank him. It's been really good just to keep it in the forefront of my mind. You're the king. I, I want to encourage you. Why don't you join me this Christmas, just as you go through it, hour by hour, day by day, just tell Jesus in just a minute or quiet seconds of prayer, Lord, you're my king, and I thank you, and you just thank him for whatever. But you see, Christmas is God's call to this world to respond to the coming of Christ. And I just want to ask you this one question. Who are you calling king? But for those of you who are like the wise men, join with me, and Jesus is just everything to us. He's our life. He's our forgiveness. He's our hope. He's our peace. He's our present. He's our future. We adore Him. And you know what we sing? Oh, come let us adore Him. Oh, come let us adore Him. Oh, come let us adore Him. him. Christ. pray. Lord, thank you for recording all that took place with the coming of your son. And you've spelled out in great detail how Herod, how the Magi, how the chief priests and scribes responded to the coming of your son so that we too may truly assess and see and answer in our own life how we'll respond to him who is indeed the king. And so, Father, if there is someone who is in this room who never placed their faith in your son, would they pray with me and say, Lord, you know all about me and all of my caustic behavior, defiance. The fact that I've just completely been uh, thinking that Jesus matters of little. Now I see he is truly God and matters most. And I turn from my sin and I trust your son, Jesus, as my savior. I realize he came with a purpose to save people like me from their sins. And I believe and I worship and I will be eternally changed because I'm trusting in Him. And Lord, for all of us, may our lives be marked with this hallmark that Christ is our King and we yield everything to Him and we follow You with our life and we love You with our hearts. And we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name.